This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello. On the website, a chorus of eos, .wordpress.com, I think that should be a chorus of echoes, but somehow the H of echoes has got lost. On this website, there's a short story by an author known only as John P.A. It's titled, Sam and His Prayer, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a man who had great dreams. His name was Sam. He wanted to change the world be some form of change agent, if you will. He was constantly looking for opportunities to give aid and help to those who were hurting. If there were conversations that he had with people, he would often speak with a tone that spoke motivation. He always gave a positive outlook on things. And like all motivational people we know, Sam was full of energy. One day, in his room, Sam knelt down and prayed, like he often did. But this time was different. Something changed, or it was like God answered his prayers. Yes, some prayers don't get answered, but sometimes there are those that get answered. Don't ask me, I'm just trying to tell you a story. In his prayer, this is what Sam uttered. Dear God, I look at the world and I see all this hurt. God, please give me the strength to be an agent of motivation for the hurting. Like a superhero, you know, with some kind of superpower a power to be a motivation for the hurting, to aid them and give them motivation to live. Dear God, if you're listening, hear my prayer. Amen. Now that was all he said, and he went to bed. No, he didn't have those prayers that lasted hours and hours, just something uttered in less than a minute. You should try it sometimes. Now the next morning, when Sam woke up, he got a phone call. His parents, who were travelling on their way to visit him, were involved in an accident. Both died on the spot. Sam was grieved. Tears flowed like a rushing river from his eyes. To lose those whom you love is always hard. It cut through his heart, piercing him like a sharp blade. While still suffering the shock of his parents' tragic death, he noticed that his apartment was in some ways empty. A theft had occurred. Now almost everything was gone. Sam was feeling numb and trying to comprehend all that was happening to him. It was all too much to take at that time, and soon after, Sam went into a depression. A month has passed, and Sam wasn't looking very good. All you could say was that he was in a mess. He never shaved from the day all hell broke loose. His hair was in a mess, his apartment in disarray. He rarely ate anything. Sam was downright depressed. He would sit for hours just staring in the darkened room. He would look at the sunset as if it felt like the sadness of goodbyes. At one point, he was venting his frustration at God. He remembered the prayer he said, and this was not the thing he asked for. He was shouting hysterically, and tears were falling from his eyes, mucus and saliva dripping down, for he was in a rage. For well, this was a mortal man speaking at the injustice that had befallen him. But after there was no more anger to be vented, and all his shouting subsided, 
A still small voice spoke out, and God said, Didn't you ask about how you wanted to motivate the hurting and those in pain? But how can you motivate those if you have none of what they are feeling and suffering? Now I guess one of the morals of the story is that you should be careful about what you ask for. You might get it, or the conditions that make it possible. I think it is a thought-provoking, even inspiring story in terms of its message. Though I did wonder whether God killed the mother and father just to make the son realize what he was asking for, or if that was their fate anyway, and Sam just happened to make his prayer the night before their death karma ripened. In any case, the reason I opened the program today with the story lies in the section of the text we're going through, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, by Namkapel. If you've been with us in previous programs, you will know that we've been talking about the five powers that we are to use in the integrated practice of a single lifetime. We've spoken about the power of intention, the power of the white seed, and the power of remorse. And today, we're going to take a peek at the fourth power, the power of prayer. And that is why Sam's story introduced today's program. But now, before we get into the power of prayer, let's set our motivation as we usually do. If we want to reap the greatest benefit out of what we are doing together today, our motivation should be bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment, so we can best benefit all living beings everywhere. Every action we do has consequences for us, and so the more we can have this motivation for each of our actions, no matter how small, the more powerful and great our merit will become. The texts say that even a small action motivated by pure bodhicitta by far outshines in merit a mammoth action done with a lesser motivation. Lama Zoparimbashe, the spiritual master of the organization Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, says this about bodhicitta motivation. So, if one wishes to achieve enlightenment rapidly, without taking much time, what is the best method? What is the best solution? Best method? What one should do? The best method that is to put the whole effort, completely concentrate on the bodhicitta. Put the whole effort to train the mind in bodhicitta. If one practices well bodhicitta, one achieves enlightenment that much quicker. As one practices well bodhicitta, if one is able to generate bodhicitta quickly, one can achieve enlightenment quicker. If one has generated bodhicitta, of course, no question. Even if one has not generated bodhicitta, even with just the effortful bodhicitta, the motivation of bodhicitta, besides the action of breathing that one accumulate infinite merit, that one can make, that one is able to do, that one can purify unimaginable obscurations in such a short time. Even when you clean the room, with just the motivation of bodhicitta alone, thinking, I'm purifying the sufferings, the cause of the sufferings, unsubdued mind and karma of sentient beings, visualizing the garbage and dirt, whatever you're cleaning, in that essence, even just removing the garbage, the brooms, even just one action of moving it with the motivation of bodhicitta, in that short time one accumulates infinite merit and one purifies unimaginable obscurations, the negative karmas. Even one makes charity, one single rice, one grain of rice to an ant, with a motivation of bodhicitta, thinking to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, if you make charity of one smaller grain of rice to the ant, again in that short time one has accumulated infinite merit, caused to achieve enlightenment. 
Now suppose we make offerings of jewel-filled universes, as many as there are sands of grains in the Pacific Ocean, to as many Buddhas as there are grains of sand in the Pacific Ocean. All these universes are filled with precious jewels, and we make these offerings for as many eons as there are grains of sand in the Pacific Ocean. But our motivation is not bodhicitta. Now also suppose we also offer one grain of rice to one ant, but this time our motivation is bodhicitta. Lama Zopa says that the merit gained by offering so many universes of jewels to so many Buddhas for so long a time cannot compare with the vastness of the merit gained by the offering of the grain of rice with bodhicitta motivation to the ant. He says, The merit that one has received by making charity of one single rice to the ant is infinite. So if that is so, then it makes great sense for us to generate a bodhicitta motivation not only for this program, but for everything we do in life. We will be accumulating infinite merit upon infinite merit if that were possible, and then enlightenment becomes much closer. Therefore, let's, let's take a moment to think about our motivation, and if we find something smaller than bodhicitta, then we can adjust and make it so much vaster by replacing it with bodhicitta. Thank you. Now returning to the power of prayer. Here, Namkarpal writes, we should make great prayers that by the force of mundane and transcendental merit in general, and especially our own merit, created by body, speech and mind throughout the three times, all sentient beings in general, and ourselves in particular, may generate the awakening mind that they have not generated, and that it may abide and thrive in those that have. In other words, we should pray that the positive potential we have generated through actions we have performed through our body, speech and mind together, with all the positive potential gained by all beings everywhere, will lead to bodhicitta arising within all of us and motivating all our actions. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama notes, The fourth force is the force of prayer. We pray, May I always be able to develop a bodhicitta aim, and if I have already developed it, may I expand it ever further. We know there's a difference between an aspirational prayer and a dedication prayer. An aspirational prayer is when we simply wish for something, which is what is involved here. And a de dedication prayer is when we use some material object as the basis and dedicate the positive force from offering that towards achieving the goal. Now, the inevitable question, particularly for Westerners, arises, what power does prayer actually have, even if it is motivated by bodhicitta? <laughs> Can it effectively make something happen that was not going to happen? Like if Sam's parents were not going to die, but because of Sam's prayer and his desire to save the world, God killed him. Does prayer have this sort of power? Well, if we're talking from a Buddhist point of view, it cannot, because we're not praying to God, so God cannot act through our, our prayers. In Tibetan Buddhism, prayer in the form of supplications and requests, praises and mantra recitations, plays a huge role. But when I asked one of my teachers what actual prayer meant, he said it was directing the mind in a certain direction. Of course, motivation, energy, concentration, dedication and so on are all part of it. So whether the mind directing is powerful or not depends on what we bring to the prayer recitation. Bodhi Paksha 
is a teacher in the Triratna Buddhist order, which used to be known as the Friends of the Western Buddhist order. He has a blog on the website www.wildmind.org in which he addresses the question of Buddhist prayer. He asks, do Buddhists pray? And goes on to say that it certainly looks like it sometimes. Since Buddhism has no creator God, you might assume that the Buddhist tradition has no room for prayer, he writes. The Buddha wasn't a god. So what would be the point of praying to him or of praying at all? Some forms of Buddhist practice that look like prayer don't in fact involve the Buddha or any other enlightened figure. When Buddhists are cultivating loving-kindness and they're repeating phrases like may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, they're not invoking any kind of outside agency. What they're doing is strengthening their own desire to see beings flourish and be free from suffering. By repeating the thought and the intention may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, they're exercising and strengthening the faculty of kindness. So, while this may resemble prayer, there isn't really any petition that's asking a deity for benefits going on. But depending on what kind of Buddhism you're looking at, you'll also see practitioners asking to be reborn in a pure land paradise after death, or use mantras to call repetitively on the name of a Buddha or Bodhisattva figure, or even asking one of them for a favor or giving thanks for a blessing. And Tibetan Buddhism uses prayer flags and prayer wheels. What are all those about? When Pure Land Buddhists call upon the saving grace of Amida Buddha in the hope of being reborn in his paradise after death, they're doing something that, to all intents and purposes, is a form of prayer. For example, here's one Pure Land prayer. I single-mindedly take refuge in Amitabha Buddha in the world of ultimate bliss. Illuminate me with your pure light and draw me in with your loving, kind vows. Thinking only of you, I now call the name of the Tathagata. For the sake of the Bodhi way, I supplicate to be reborn in your pure land. Bodhipaksha continues, This isn't the form of Buddhism I practice, and it doesn't particularly appeal to me, but it's not something I want to dismiss or be condescending about. Although it's tempting for Westerners to see these beliefs and practices as superstitious or naive, there is in fact a well-developed theology based around pure land practice, and it's based on meditations that the Buddha himself encouraged, namely Buddha Nusati, or recollection of the Buddha. In Buddha Nusati, we reflect on the qualities of the Buddha, and in doing so, we develop an affinity with those qualities and with enlightenment. And so Buddha Nusati helps us move towards becoming enlightened ourselves. Reciting mantras is a very similar practice. When you hear a Buddhist reciting Om Mani Padme Hum, what they're actually doing is repeating the name of the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara. One of this figure's other names was Mani Padma, the Lotus Jewel One. This kind of mantra practice can be very effective, even if you don't believe Avalokiteshvara exists. Mantra works to a large extent by giving the mind a rest from the incessant angry, grasping, and anxious thoughts that plague us in our daily lives. When you're reciting a mantra, you just aren't able to keep up a negative inner monologue the way you normally might. And again, the mantra is a form of Buddha Nasati and can help us to call to mind the qualities of a compassionate presence and help those qualities manifest in our own minds. But it's clear from Tibetan teachings on devotional practice that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are not separate from the nature of our own minds. It is only a slight simplification 
to say that when you pray to Avalokiteshvara, you are invoking the power of your own potential awakened mind. Prayer flags and prayer wheels fall somewhere in between loving-kindness practice and mantra. In fact, prayer flags and prayer wheels are really mantra flags and mantra wheels for the most part, since mantras are prominent in both forms of device. Tibetans believe that as prayer flags flap in the wind, or as a prayer wheel is spun, the blessings of the mantras will spread out on the wind and have a beneficial effect on all beings. Prayer flags and prayer wheels are a kind of prayer technology. It's hard to say how many Westerners believe that prayer flags and prayer wheels work in this way. My guess is that only a small percentage does, and that for most of us, prayer flags are a form of spiritual decoration, with mostly symbolic value. With these various forms of practice going on within Buddhism, it would be hard to claim that there is no prayer in Buddhism. It is possible to point to differences between Buddhist prayer and the prayer of the mainstream theistic traditions, but the similarities are much stronger than the differences. Nevertheless, sometimes people feel the need to pray, even though prayer strikes them as being a bit silly. My own teacher, when asked about this, advised, if you feel like praying, then pray, and worry about the theology afterwards. And that's wise advice. And that's Bodhipaksha from the Triratna tradition. As for the actual power of prayer, since the 1950s, many scientific studies have been conducted to find out the effects of prayer, especially in what is known as distant intentionality, the power to influence others at a distance through intercession such as prayer. The label, distant intentionality, or DI for short, seeks to avoid any religious connotations, instead focusing on the purposeful mental aspects of prayer. According to Patrick Marsalek's article, Prayer Power, on the website www.atlantisrisingmagazine.com, DI covers at least six modalities of healing. He lists them as A. Intercessionary prayer, making a request for a desired outcome. B. Non-directed prayer, requesting only the will of a higher power. C. Energy healing, covering many different practitioners who use subtle energies to heal. D. Shamanic healing, a complex set of practices where a practitioner uses altered states, metaphysical realms and spirits to encourage healing. E. Therapeutic touch, a specific practice using the meditative focus and intention. And F. Spiritual healing, and this refers to a wide range of techniques including spirits, mediums, seances, trances and channeling, often within some religious context. Marsalek's article purports to look at some of the current science and research into prayer, but unfortunately talks only in general terms and does not directly reference any particular studies. However, it does mention Dr. Larry Dosey, who had done extensive research into the power of prayer and written the books Healing Words, The Power of Prayer and the Practice of Medicine, and its sequel Prayer is Good Medicine. Although I have not read either book, on www.healthy.net I did find the following article reporting on remarks Dr. Dosi made at a workshop on spirituality, healing and the soul at the Centre for Mind-Body Medicine. I think it has some relevance to our discussion on the power of prayer. Dr. Dosi says, You can't go through years of education here in the US 
without being exposed to the idea that everything is physical. If you have a metaphysical cosmic experience, well, that's just a chemical reaction. If you have a born-again experience, lithium will take care of it. We come out of our schools with no appreciation of the mind or even the presence of consciousness. In reality, you can't find anything in the body that defines consciousness. It's hard to find anything that you can pinpoint as the mind. It's time we admitted that nothing in chemistry or physics has even a remote bearing on consciousness. As David Chalmers, a philosopher at the University of California at Santa Cruz, said in a recent article in Scientific American, it's time to bite the bullet and admit that consciousness is another force altogether on a par with matter and energy. When we talk of prayer, we're talking about distant manifestations of consciousness. To talk in this way is to break some kind of taboo. We can accept the power of mind in affecting bodily processes, but to talk interpersonally that my consciousness can have an effect on other persons and events is a major paradigm shift. The first major shift in our thinking about health came in the mid-1800s when we began to view the body scientifically and mechanically. You identify what's not working right and fix it. The second era brought in the connection between mind and body. We began to talk about psychosomatic illness. The third era introduces the idea of non-local medicine. Local medicine believes that my mind is localized in my brain. Non-local medicine says that my mind may not be localized to my brain and body, or even to the present moment. One way to define intercessionary prayer is as positive, distant, non-local manifestation of consciousness. This includes born-again Christians' prayers as well as the Buddhists. It can include rejoicing, talking, silence, be addressed to God or to the universe. How you pray is up to you. People get upset with this kind of broad definition. Most people in this culture define prayer as talking aloud to oneself or to some white male parent figure, usually in the English language. But there are many cultures and religions with prayer practices. Unless you want to disenfranchise lots of people, we need a broader definition. And interestingly, the studies on prayer show no correlation between religious affiliation and the effects of prayer in the laboratory. The factors that seem to work are love, compassion, empathy and deep caring. The most famous prayer study was conducted by Dr. Randolph Bird, a cardiologist in the University of California at San Francisco Medical Center. He took 393 people who had been admitted to the hospital with a heart attack. All of the subjects received the same high-tech, state-of-the-art coronary care, but half were also prayed for by name by prayer groups around the country. No one knew who was being prayed for, the patients, the doctors, the nurses. The prayed-for group had fewer deaths, faster recovery, less intubations, and used fewer potent medications. If the subject of this study had been a new medication instead of prayer, this would have been considered a medical breakthrough. Up until then, most medical people had considered prayer a nice thing. It didn't hurt much, but they certainly didn't consider it a matter of life and death. One of the complaints about birds and other studies is that they are not rigorously done. In writing my books, I looked at all of the studies, some 160 of them. While it is true that some have problems, 
Many are fantastically precise and admirably designed. Two-thirds show that the impact of distant prayer is statistically significant. Some scientists have talked of the problem of extraneous prayer. How do we know that those cardiac patients in the control group weren't being prayed for by friends and family? People often pray in a crisis. Now I, for one, am glad that this problem of extraneous prayer exists. If I have a heart attack, I want to have a lot of this problem. But for research purposes, scientists have gotten around this by doing studies of the growth of bacteria in test tubes. That way, you guarantee the purity of the control group. And you know what? The prayed-for test tube also shows a reduction in the growth of bacteria. This kind of study might seem outrageous, but this is where precise science can be done. Some people have told me, you cannot afford to talk about prayer stuff like this. You'll, you'll make people feel guilty. What if someone is on this wonderful spiritual path, but the pathology report comes back positive? They may feel shame and blame and guilt. They may feel they haven't prayed hard enough or been spiritual enough. So don't bring it up and make them feel uncomfortable. I think we who believe in the connection between body, mind and spirit have to take this problem very seriously. In some circles, there is the belief that if you stay on a spiritual path, everything will turn out all right. There's even a book that says that you'll never die if you achieve spiritual perfection. So, if you get sick, that means you had some more spiritual work to do. We need to say emphatically that there's not a one-to-one -one correlation. One's well-being is not just as simple as being happy and being aware or praying properly. Any model we create about the relationship between spiritual achievement and good health has to account for two groups of people. I call them the healthy reprobates and the unhealthy saints. One of the oldest men on earth lives in Iraq. He's at least 120 years old and drinks and smokes all the time. And history is full of very spiritual people who were sick all the time. In the Bible, Job was de described as perfect. And look what happened to him. The Buddha died of food poisoning. We should understand that prayer does have an impact, but it can't save us from death or guarantee we won't get sick. There's no historical or clinical evidence that this is true. I would say to you, though, don't wait for the results of more double-blind studies to pray. We can stand to have more extraneous prayer in this world of ours. And with that, we're going to have to end the program today because our time is up. Thank you very much for joining the program and please dedicate as we leave to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. I hope you have a wonderful week and that you'll tune in again next week. Thank you very much and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.